0: Hi there, welcome to the fray. You're about to listen to episode seven of part one of the podcast series, The Alpha Human, all about Socrates. This particular episode has a little audio issue. I have a neighbor who was rototilling, and this being a quarantine, I had to do the best I could. So you might want to turn your bass down a little bit about halfway through because there's some rumbling coming through my walls. Anyway, hope you enjoy it, and I want to welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. much of a planner. I fly by the seat of my pants. Most of the time, this has afforded me some interesting perks throughout my lifetime. It has also led me into some pretty sticky wickets, but luckily I've been able to come out a little bit ahead of certain demise. One of the perks that I enjoy is not having my plans ruined. Since I rarely make plans, I rarely have to deal with the disappointment when those plans fall through. On the other hand, For those of us who are not planners, we can experience our correlative calamity when our lack of planning leads to difficulties. This can be especially galling when it was something simple, and if we had just stopped for a minute and gotten things in order, then all of this could have been avoided. This feeling I have felt many times in my life. So which is worse? The feeling of loss when the best laid plans go awry, or the feeling of regret when simple action could have prevented disaster? It is my guess that each side would consider theirs the more intense feeling in order to reason themselves into justifying their course of action. Or maybe each side would relish a little other side of the street action and want to try the other's pain on for size. In the case of ancient Athens, they get the chance to experience both feelings at the same time. After early success in the Peloponnesian War, the city of Athens will have their fantastic Ignore campaign backfire on them in spectacular fashion. At the same time, they will come to rue the day when they decided to spend all of their time and money making Athens beautiful instead of building a couple of roads and a sewer system. The wonderfully annoying plan of Pericles to hunker down behind the walls of Athens while the Spartans stomp around the countryside like impetuous toddlers was a stroke of genius. As the campaign season for the war neared, Athens was already pulling in their population behind the fortification. This was not such an easy thing to do, as the walled portion of the city was not built to house most of the 250,000 Athenians. It was, in fact, built to house maybe a tenth of that. The accounts of the housing situation is a little repulsive. In some cases, they were up to 40 people in a single room. A single room without windows. Living like that for an entire summer. But no one was being slaughtered by the Spartans. And as long as no one was dying, then most were very willing to share accommodations with 39 of their closest friends. But that all changed when people started to die. The best laid plans of Pericles was about to become a disaster. His great plan will fall apart at the hands of his lack of planning. For without plumbing and sewers, the city was struck by the plague. Now we don't know the specifics of the plague itself, but there is one thing for certain. It was a type of misery that our Western world has had mercilessly muted, if not completely suppressed. Thucydides, who lived through it, tried to describe it. Quote, words indeed fail one when one tries to give a general picture of this disease. And as for the sufferings of individuals, they seemed almost beyond the capacity of human nature to endure. End quote. The simple fact of the lack of sanitation and fresh water coupled with intense overcrowding created a communicable disease that wiped out the city of Athens. To say it decimated the population would actually be an understatement, since decimate means to remove one out of every ten. Over the course of the plague, more than one in four Athenians succumbed to the disease. Pericles himself fought it off long enough to keep the feeble population behind the walls as certain death awaited them outside in the form of the Spartans, and then he died. And with him, so did the great promise that was the golden age of Athens. The Peloponnesian War would continue for almost 20 years, mostly due to the power that Athens had accumulated combined with her walls and ports. It allowed the city to slide into defeat rather than be trampled soundly once and for all. But make no bones about it, the plague was the mortal blow that felled our great beauty. Once again, we turn to Thucydides. Quote, Nothing did the Athenians so much harm as this, or so reduce their strength for war. Unquote. So now the people really had a couple of options at this point. Remember, a lot of them were living dozens to a home in fetid conditions, often with people dying of the plague right next to them, literally skin-touching skin, wheezing and crying. With that in mind, the people of Athens could choose to stay the course, towing the Periclean line and hitching their wagons to the sophists and keeping man as the measure of all things. Or they could decide to invite the Olympians back to the party. I mean, after all, as capricious and psychotic as they were, They really wiped out almost a third of us in one swipe. Screw man. Let's get our Apollo back on. And don't know if you can blame them at this point. Life, something the Athenians especially reveled in, the living of a life worth living, had been snatched from their very grasp. One can almost hear the echo of Pericles in the cold winds that ravaged the suffering. Quote, And how men feel sorrow, not for the loss of what they have never tasted, but when something that has grown dear to them has been snatched away, unquote. All that promise was gone, replaced by death and suffering. With the death of Pericles, we know that two things happen. One, just mentioned, the conservative faction in Athens began to consolidate its power, and one of the first actions in the campaign to dismantle Periclean Athens was to disavow the sophists. Now, this was not a hard thing to do, For quite a long time, the professional teachers of the wealthy were unliked by the majority of Athenians. Now Protagoras and his ilk had to tread lightly in public. As to be expected, the mood of kindness and geniality on the streets of Athens had been replaced by paranoia and violence. The second thing we are sure happened is that, well, Socrates is going to Socrates. He made it through the plague years as healthy and hardy as ever, If anything, his daily walks increased, and he began to earn the title that would be bestowed on him by his fellow Athenians, the Gadfly of Athens. There is no record of Socrates commenting on the political and social upheaval that he was right in the center of. Instead, he seems to take the opportunity to track down the ruling class of the city and publicly embarrass them. The fame that Socrates attained after his military service only increased in a smaller populated city. This was due to one of the more famous moments that happened to Socrates. It's the time when the Delphic Oracle returns to our story. Having Socrates and the Oracle in the same scene is like having Pacino and De Niro sharing the screen in the film Heat. They don't directly meet the Delphic Oracle and Socrates, but there is a direct question that is put to the Oracle concerning who is the wisest person in Athens. The question was asked by a young follower of Socrates. Socrates had begun to collect a base, mostly of younger men, who would follow the shuffling Socrates around. A member of this group, Caraphon, journeyed to the oracle and asked straight up, who was the man in Athens? And the answer was that Socrates, of all the accomplished intellectuals in the city, and there were quite a few to be sure, the name that escaped the lips of the oracle was that weird, ugly man who walked the street barefoot and in rags, looking like Fred Flintstone's drunk uncle. As the oracle's answer spread through Athens, it was sure to infuriate the powers that be. Socrates was beginning to become a political force, not by any intent on his part, other than to persuade others to see the world as he did, simple, honest, and fair. To quote the man himself, quote, poverty is the shortcut to self-control, unquote. Being selected as the wisest man in all of Athens was a real problem for the wealthy and the powerful of the city if this abhorrently persistent man was the wisest for possessing nothing for professing to knowing nothing why that type of thinking could really get the wealthy and powerful in some trouble on top of that those crowds of young men following socrates around they weren't common rabble they were the sons of the very people socrates would focus his attention on the wealthy and the powerful These sons of the ruling class are more than just sponges soaking up Socrates' wisdom. In a way, they were more spectators than they were students. They followed Socrates around. They were hoping to see him interact with someone, preferably someone famous, or who professed great wisdom like a sophist. It's like they started attending these sort of philosophy car crashes to get their Jerry Springer on. But inevitably, Socrates' uniqueness would win some of the youth over then the neophyte Socratic would return home. Remember, they lived there until their 30th year, and they would pontificate on this, quote, superhuman genius. Remember, that's how Alcibades described Socrates. And he'd pontificate about this superhuman genius to their ruling class father, who would grow tiresome of hearing about this loony old homeless guy hanging out with his kid. Generational politics is nothing new. Now, whether or not it was directly addressed, him influencing the youth at that point. It didn't stop the crowds from following Socrates around on his daily sojourns. And it didn't stop Socrates from logically waterboarding whoever was foolish enough to square off against him. It can be sure thing that it was not a fun experience to be selected by this weird, ugly man into a discussion that was most certainly going to lead to your embarrassment. And worse, it could ruin your reputation as a learned man, and you could lose your way of life. Socrates most liked to target teachers, professional teachers, sophists. Now for the record, Socrates did not consider himself a teacher. He didn't want to teach people. He didn't think any man had the knowledge and ability to teach anyone anything. His mission was one where he wanted to demonstrate true knowledge, or at least the best way to search for it, to allow the other person to see for themselves what it means to be wise. Now let's just take a small example of it, of Socrates applying his trade. So this is going to be a dialogue between Socrates and a father who had asked him his opinion on whether or not his son, this is not Socrates' son, but this second party, we'll call him, his name is Miletius, whether his son should learn to fight in armor to like take gymnastic training in armor to prepare for war. Now there's a couple other names that are thrown around here, but for the most part it's Socrates asking questions and getting answers in return. So let's start. So it we'll starts with Socrates asking a gentleman named Lysimachus a question. Socrates asks, what, Lysimachus? Are you going to accept the opinion of the majority? And Lysimachus replies, Why yes, Socrates, what else am I to do? Socrates asks, And would you do so too? Melesius, if you were deliberating about the gymnastic training of your son, would you follow the advice of the majority of us, or the opinion of the one who had been trained and exercised under a skillful master? Milesius answers, The latter, Socrates, as would surely be reasonable. Socrates asks, His one vote would be worth more than the vote of all of us four? Milesius replies, Certainly. Socrates asks, And for this reason, as I imagine, because a good decision is based on knowledge and not on numbers. Meletius concurs, to be sure. Socrates then replies, Must we not then first of all ask whether there is any one of us who has knowledge about which we are deliberating? If there is, let us take his advice, though he be only one, and not mind the rest. If there is not, let us seek further counsel. Is this a slight matter about which you and Lysimachus are deliberating? Are you not risking the greatest of your possessions? For children are your riches, and upon their turning out well or ill depends on the whole order of their father's house. Milesius replies, that is true. Socrates asked, great care then is required in this matter. Certainly, replies Milesius. Socrates says, suppose I was just now saying that we were considering or wanted to consider who was the best trainer. Should we not select him who knew and had practiced the art, and who had the best teachers? I think that we should, is the reply. Socrates asks, but would there not arise a prior question about the nature of the art, which we want to find the masters? I do not understand. Socrates replies, let me try to make my meaning plainer then. I do not think that we have as yet decided what that is about which we are consulting, when we ask which of us is or is not skilled in the art or has or has not had a teacher of the art. The reply to Socrates is, Why, Socrates, is not the question whether young men ought or ought not to learn the art of fighting in armor? Socrates replies, Yes, but there is also a prior question, which I may illustrate in this way. When a person considers about applying a medicine to the eyes, would you say that he is consulting about the medicine? or about the eyes? The reply is, about the eyes. Socrates then says, and when he considers whether he shall set a bridle on a horse, and at what time, he is thinking of the horse and not of the bridle. True, is the reply. Socrates continues, and in a word, when he considers anything for the sake of another thing, he thinks of the end and not of the means. Certainly, is the reply. Socrates then says, and when you call in an advisor, you should see whether he too is skillful in the accomplishment of the end, which you have in view. Most true, is the reply. Socrates continues, And at present we have in view some knowledge of which the end is the soul of youth. Yes, is the reply. Socrates continues, And we are inquiring which of us is skillful or successful in the treatment of the soul, and which of us has had good teachers. Well, but Socrates, comes the reply, did you never observe that some persons who have had no teachers are more skillful than those who have in some things? Yes, replied Socrates, I have observed that, but you would not be very willing to trust them if they only professed to be masters of their art unless they could show some proof of their skill or excellence in one or more works. The answer, that is true. There you have it. Works every time. Socrates? will always work to get you to refute your own premise. The more certain you are, the more of a fight you put up, the worse the drubbing will be. This would happen in public, and more often than not, it was happening to a person who were a group of acolytes of his own, students ascribing to their wise master's knowledge. That is, until Socrates stops by to eviscerate the so-called knowledge in the presence of a trash-talking mob of sycophants that only increased the amount of attention on your public pseudo-flogging. This had to create enemies. But luckily for Socrates, most of his victims were already persona non grata, the sophists. And he had his ever-present goodwill of the people, especially now that the conservative fervor favored his Dionistic look. It's not hard to imagine the common Greek, who had suffered through the plague, didn't relish when one of their own tore into and left in pieces one of the wealthy. These were both good reasons to why Socrates was able to continue to behave in this manner. This is a time of mass death. It is everywhere in the streets of the city. Each summer, the pain is increased by the ever-present March of the Spartans, ever ready for battle. Everyone was on edge. It would have been a simple task to drag Socrates into an alley and beat him senseless. We have no reason to believe that anything like that ever happened. Socrates, oblivious to the suffering, or I'm certain that he would say because of it, never stopped being Socrates. Another reason that Socrates was left alone, at least in the beginning of this period, is that he still had friends in high places. His longtime friend Alcibades had made it through the plague and was a up-and-coming leader of Athens in his own right. In the coming years, he will reach the rank of general in the Athenian army and lead the largest naval invasion in Athenian history. Until then, he's an unmitigated fan of Socrates he and other members of the ruling elite in the city considered themselves followers of our Alpha Human. Though, Socrates, of course, would never accept anyone calling him a leader of anything. Socrates was just trying to learn how to live one's life the best, most virtuous way possible. These ties to power would not be disavowed by Socrates, possibly because he didn't care what other people said unless they were answering his questions. In any event, his relationships with Alcibades and his cronies will prove to be something that would come to break the bonds, even the ones he held with his fellow common Athenians. But before we get there, there's a little matter of a media smear campaign that needs to be talked about. You heard me right. Socrates is about to be publicly smeared and accused of crimes through the main media outlet in Athens, that of the Theata. In 423 BC, a play debuted in Athens called Clouds, written by a young playwright named Aristophanes. He was about 20 or 21 years old at the time. It was not a resounding hit at the time. I didn't win any awards, which is really the intent of why they wrote plays back then. But the play was part of a heavy rotation of plays that were performed at festivals and funerals throughout Athens for decades. At this time, plays were where most Athenians got their headlines. I was going to say news, but that's too precise a term. Like all pop culture, The plays of Athens reflected the mood and temperament of the population consuming the media. For Athenians, they preferred the theater, and the wealthy and powerful knew that. A young playwright like Aristophanes was probably not able to produce a play on his own. He was most likely commissioned to write a play like Cloud's by some wealthy benefactor, someone who would like to remain anonymous, all the while putting Socrates and the people of Athens on notice that his antics were wearing very thin. No one knows for sure who produced clouds, but it is not a stretch to believe that a disgruntled wealthy but shamed Sophist was behind it. It's quite a thing, this play. If you haven't had a chance to peruse it, here's a snippet. In this scene, they are talking about Socrates. It is a conversation about Socrates who kind of jumps in at the end Starts off being held between a dude named Strepsiades and another guy who's just listed as disciple. So he's a disciple of Socrates. So this begins with Strepsiades asking a question, or making an exclamation, I guess. Ah, great, Zeus, what a brain, what subtlety. Disciple, I wonder what then you would say if you knew another of Socrates's contrivances. Strepsiades, what is it? Pray tell me. Disciple. Kerferon, of the Demi Svedia, asked him whether he thought a gnat buzzed through its proboscis or through its anus. Strepsiades, and what did he say about the gnat? Disciple, he said the gut of the gnat was narrow, and that, in passing through this tiny passage, the air is driven with force towards the breach. Then, after this slender channel, it encountered the rump, which was distended like a trumpet. And there it resounded sonorously. Strepsiades, so the arse of a gnat is a trumpet. Oh, what a splendid arsevation. Thrice happy Socrates, it would not be difficult to succeed in a lawsuit knowing so much about a gnat's guts. Disciple, not long ago a lizard caused him the loss of a sublime thought. Strepsiades, in what way, please? Disciple, one night, when he was studying the course of the moon and its revolutions and was gazing open-mouthed at the heavens, A lizard crapped upon him from the top of the roof. Stripsiades, a lizard crapping on Socrates? That's rich. Socrates now jumps into the scene. I have to suspend my brain and mingle the subtle essence of my mind with this air, which is of the like nature in order clearly to penetrate the things of heaven. I should have discovered nothing had I remained on the ground to consider from below the things that are above, for the earth by its force attracts the sap of the mind to itself. It is just the same with the watercress. I mean, (laughs) it's meant to sound ridiculous. It seems to have could only have come from the mind of someone who thought they were wise, but in reality, were frauds. We see a lot of that in our day and age. A lot of what I read about this play painted it as a slam against sophistry and lumped Socrates in with them in his most detested profession, that of a professional teacher. But if you even just glance at the play itself, it sure seems to me that the play that takes square aim at is philosophy, and people like Zeno of Ilia, that pre-Socratic paradox maker. All the talk of high thinking in clouds is about natural philosophy. Stuff like what is the air made of? Is the earth round or flat? What makes up matter? In either case, Aristophanes gets things incorrect. Socrates is no sophist, nor does he care if the moon is made of cheese or not. He is not concerned with the material world. Are you living a good life? Do you know what true wisdom is? Is there any reason to harm another person? These are the larger questions that Socrates was interested in answering. There is no doubt in my mind that the play Clouds was meant to discredit and embarrass Socrates. If you wanted to get conspiracy theory, you could go even further than that and think of the play as part of a frame job that will end up leading to the murder of Socrates. After all, The fictional Socrates in the play is is accused of crimes that are identical to the charges leveled against him 24 years later at his trial. Life moved slowly back then. So even though 24 years seems like a long time, there is no doubt that the minds of jurors in Socrates' trial were influenced by this play. Remember, it was shown year after year after year. And it was performed for years probably because Socrates was so famous and it did a lot to reinforce a line of thought that would eventually end up at Socrates' door, holding him responsible for the devastation the city had undergone. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. More on that later. The play is important in another way. It is the first time since he enrolled as a citizen, the person we know as Socrates, the philosophic son of a stonecutter, enters the permanent record. In 47 years of life, Socrates appears in writing, twice. Once, just his name on the civic rolls, and the other time, 25 years later, in a comic play designed to discredit and embarrass him. All the other information we have on Socrates all happens after his 47th year. For his part, Socrates liked the play. He liked theater and is said to have been a sort of a punch-up writer for playwrights of the day. He even worked with Aristophanes. They became good friends, which is another reason... That leads me to believe that Aristophanes was not writing clouds for himself, but was asked to lampoon an enemy by a wealthy victim of Socrates' methods. Meanwhile, outside the walls of Athens, the Peloponnesian War raged on. Approaching 415 BC, the Athenians were in need of a victory. They had regained some of their footing after enduring the effects of the plague and were planning a large naval invasion of the island of Sicily. This plan was hatched by none other than our friend, Alcibades. He was a general at this point. He was co-planning this invasion with another man, friendly to Socrates, Nicias, who thinks the invasion is a bad idea. Alcibades, still beautiful, is as popular as ever, then holds the day, and the naval invasion is planned. Having two generals who didn't get along and didn't even agree on the plan of attack was a bad idea. Putting someone like Alcibades in charge of it all was another bad idea. Right before the invasion was to commence, Alcibades was arrested for impiety for desecrating the Elysian Mysteries, a conservative Athenian cult dating back to antiquity. Charges that are never made any more clear than that. We don't know what that meant. But they must have been pretty serious as Alcibades escaped arrest and fled. Now, I've mentioned Alcibades being sort of a special case and these next series of events are going to paint a pretty good picture for why I think that. After escaping arrest, Alcibades decides to turn traitor and join the mortal enemies of Athens, the Spartans. All he has to do is divulge all he knows of the coming naval invasion of Sicily, which he promptly does, which means that Nicias leads the largest naval force in Athenian history to its doom. All the ships are lost. Nicias is executed for his incompetence. And get this, Alcibades then defects back to Athens and they take him back. One thing Alcibades has in spades was balls. He would mess around with Sparta some more until they sent an assassination squad after him, which led him to turn traitor one more time, this time to the Persians. If you ever get the chance, you should pick up a book on Alcibades. His story is a maze of crazy crazy. Eventually, one of the death squads catches up with Alcibades in Asia. I kind of picture that one of those final scenes out of Goodfellas when Henry is smuggling coke and watching helicopters from his car only it ends with a slit throat in a tent rather than a witness protection plan in Arizona. All told, the military disaster blamed at the time on Nicaeus and the traitorous turn of Athens' favorite son Alcibades was a big blow for Socrates. First, those men he counted as his friends, so personally he would have feelings. But publicly, an already downtrodden and vindictive populace seethed against the loss of its navy. The summary of execution the summary execution of Nicias had done little to assuage their anger. But Alcibades was where the real pain must have been felt. Athens had loved Alcibades so much they had taken him back after he'd gone over to the Spartans. The fact that he had then broke their heart again. This time with the Persians must have been devastating. At this point it would not have been surprising to have seen the last of our Socrates the man. But again Our boy skates and continues unmolested to verbally molest his Athenian counterparts. The war once again will provide an opportunity to expose Socrates to danger. This time it will be due to an Athens victory. After rebuilding a portion of its navy, Athens was able to score a victory against the Spartan coalition. This is about 407 BC at this point. The war is in its 23rd year, and the victories have come few and far between for Athens. It speaks to the general feeling in Athens that even in victory there is anger, for the eight generals in charge of the victorious Athenian fleet will be promptly brought up on charges for losing 25 ships in battle. A victorious battle, remind you. The case came to trial, and the penalty, if found guilty, would be death. Socrates was a member of the jury. None of this was sitting well with him. The whole trial itself was seen as illegal to him against the stated laws of the city. Not to mention that the punishment was far too severe for the charges that the eight men were being accused of. At first Socrates had an effect on his fellow jurors, getting them to recognize they were participating in a kangaroo court. But Socrates couldn't rely on the goodwill of his fellow Athenians in this case. Regardless of how persuasive his arguments were, the political pressure being put on the other men of the jury was too much to bear, and after the dust had settled, Socrates was the only man out of 500 fellow jurors To vote not to execute. Six of the generals were executed. To escape, now that must be an interesting story. And Socrates walked home, fully expecting to be dragged into an alley and beaten to death. But once again, he wasn't. With all this calamity befalling not only our alpha human, but more acutely our beauty, the once wonderful and unique Athens, it is time for us to focus just a bit on some good news. Sometime during all of this, probably a little bit further back, say 420 B.C., about the time of the Aristophanes' play, Socrates got married. He was in his mid-50s at this point, and his bride, her name is Xanthippe, was of unknown age, though most assuredly she was decades younger than Socrates. Now, you may wonder what type of person would marry someone like Socrates. It is important to remember that love probably had little to do with it. Socrates finally tied the knot so that he could contribute to his city the gift of sons, just like his friend Pericles had commanded of him. For the newcomers will help you to forget the gap in your own circle, and will help the city to fill up the ranks of its workers and soldiers. For all of that, there has been quite a good deal of commenting on Xanthippe, and most of it revolves around how much of a pain in the ass she was. If you read a more modern, say, written-after-1990 account of their relationship, it begins to get refreshingly more complicated, the picture of Xanthippe. However, if you get info from a more troglodyte source that sees any sort of manifestation of independent thought and action from a woman as some sort of acting out or being difficult, you get a steady refrain of one word, shrew. Now, there is some ammunition for this belief from Socrates himself, or at least allegedly. One of the references is actually not attributed to him, at least as far as I can find, but it appears to be one of those things the internet created because it's quoted as one of his all the time. The quote is, by all means, marry. if you get a good wife, you will be happy. If you get a bad one, you will be a philosopher, unquote. Now, surely if Socrates did say that, he was not fond of being married, but I think he was, so I don't think that was him. Now, the other quote that I actually found Uh, From Socrates, and it comes uh, actually from him in a conversation about the behavior of his wife. This leads me to believe that she was outspoken in her own right, in her own person, because people knew about her and asked Socrates questions like, Why was he with such a woman? Now, his answer was, Because we know from the business of horse training that owners often like to pick a difficult animal, unquote. Now, take away the comparison to the horse. The logic of a statement like that dictates that the goal of picking a horse is to pick the best one defining the best meaning functionally, optimally, like Socrates' own obtrusive features. And if that pick, the choice that will become the best, matters as far as horses go, it tends to be the most difficult one. So, I don't know, maybe she liked to bone loudly, you know, get down and let it all hang out, so to speak. I mean, one could imagine Socrates being ever so logical about their relationship, setting down that this one and only goal was to provide for his true love, Athens. In any event, they stayed merry until Socrates' death, and she was there the day of his execution, in tears. She also bore Socrates' three healthy sons, delivering on a promise to improve the city in any way he could. Socrates was probably not the best husband by today's standards, as he was pretty absent, but I can say for certain he was never unkind or unfair with his family, and in fact, I can't imagine that he didn't find great joy in his family. Everything about it served his beliefs of a good life. Now back to all the bad stuff that keeps happening to the city of Athens. Even with the recent naval victory, Athens found herself beset on all sides. Athens seemed to run out of leaders to volunteer after the mass execution of the last set of them. And after almost 30 years of holding on, their walls finally crumbled and the Spartans invaded our shining city on the hill. The war was over. The Athenians lost. It gets a little interesting here, as the Spartans seemed to be not ready for the collapse of Athens. They had to resort to hunkering up at the top of the turtle shell that the Athens was built on, a place called the Acropolis. It's not a building, but a system of buildings and temples where Athenian court and other official business is conducted. And from there, they installed a puppet government that would get the inspiring name, the Thirty Tyrants. Socrates survived the Spartan insurgency and was still beating the pavement when the 30 tyrants came into power. These 30 tyrants were Athenian citizens, extremely conservative citizens who had worked out a deal with the Spartans. Now this was bad in the long run for Socrates because one of the main tyrants, a man named Critias, was one of his former roving band of hecklers that used to follow Socrates around, making life miserable. The Athenians had had to have started asking themselves, what was going on with people who learned under the wing of that weird old man. Nicias, Alcibades, and now Critias? Things would have probably been okay if Critias had been one of those benevolent king type of leaders. Instead, upon taking office, Critias proceeded to call for the execution of some 1,500 Athenian citizens. All then. Word on the street was that Socrates was a name that was slotted for elimination, But instead, Critias, being a former follower of the man, offered Socrates a choice. If he didn't want to be executed, he could go ahead and help these other four guys kill some guy from Salamis. What do you say? A little murder party. Socrates said no. Again, he walked back to his home, fully expecting to be hit on the head and dragged into an alley, never to be seen again. And he probably would have been this time, but Critias lost power, and Athens was able to wrestle the Spartans out of their city, and negotiate a treaty. In 403 BC, the city-state of Athens emerged from the Peloponnesian War a battered remnant of her once-glorious self. Somehow, in the negotiations with the Spartans, they had been allowed to retain their democratic form of government, but in reality, I guess, it was about all they had left. So now the war was over. All that was left to do was pick up the pieces and set forth the putting things right again. Except that's not what happened. Very few people alive knew how to put stuff behind them and move on. The ancient Athenian would instead, of looking forward, would continue to look around for someone to blame. They would look far and wide, would not find many people left. All the big hitters were either long dead or long gone. Pericles, Protagoras, Alcibades, Nicaeus, Critias, all gone. No one was left. Well, that's not necessarily true. There was one person left that had their hand in the horror show that had been Athens for the past 30 years, that weird, ugly pest. Say, didn't he have all those guys as students? Well, yes, I think he did. So maybe they've learned how to drive our beloved city into the ground from that guy. Socrates' days were numbered. And if we take stock of the events leading up to our alpha male standing alone amongst the ruin of a once great city, it is not hard to understand why first, there was the media smear campaign introduced in the play Clouds, who portrayed Socrates as a fool and worse, a danger to the Athenian way of life. The character in the play was brought up on charges of impiety and corrupting the young. Those offenses were no mere misdemeanors, for they carried the possible penalty of death. But Socrates bared the play no mind. There is a story that he attended a performance of clowns and enjoyed it very much, He was reportedly seen laughing and having a good old time at his own expense. Then he went right back to his quest for the beautiful, the virtuous, the good. He went right back to being the gadfly of Athens. Second, there is his refusal to condemn the eight generals, six of them who were executed when they were put on trial for their lives after winning one of the last battles for Athens in the war. The people who had been pressing for a unanimous verdict back then were now in power once again, and 1,500 of the family and friends have just recently been the victims of a campaign of terror that led to their death or disappearance. And third, even though he turned down the opportunity to become philosophy's first hitman when he declined to be part of a murder squad under the 30 tyrants, and his actual disavowal of the man Critias himself—now, Something way out of character for Socrates, who ironically didn't like the spotlight. Even with all that, anyone having any association with the murderous tyrant had reason to fear for their life. Add it all up, and you might think about skipping town. But not Socrates. He was still firmly in love with his beauty, the city of Athens. He would never leave it. His friends, and he still had a lot of friends, begged him to banish himself to some place in Asia or Italy, but Socrates will have none of it. All he had, and all that he was, was in the stones of the streets of Athens. He felt part of this thing that was ancient Athens, incorporated into the very functionality where he was always the most happy, being functional. No, he will never leave his one true love. So with every reason for Athens to kill him, and equally valid reasons for Socrates to make haste and get the hell out of Dodge, neither did, well, anything. Everything remained the same for almost three full years. In these three years, Socrates walked the streets of Athens, went home to his wife and family, and tried to achieve a true sense of happiness. There is a quote from him in this time frame that is great. Quote, The secret of happiness, you see, is not found in seeking more, but in developing the capacity to enjoy less. This may have been the happiest time in his life, Though the pressure of living on borrowed time cannot be comfortable in any sense of the word, Socrates, probably more than anyone, dealt with a lack of comfort because he just didn't pay any attention to it. Socrates gone to Socrates. Instead, he liked to do things like dance. He says, quote, I frequently dance because it is good for me, unquote. And we know him and Xanthippe were knocking boots because in this time frame they welcomed their third son. Socrates is almost 70 years old. I've said before, and I will say it again, how he made it this far is a real testament to the one attribute that all who knew Socrates granted him, endurance. No one has ever met anyone that had greater endurance than Socrates, not in argument, not on the battlefield, not on the streets, and not in the hearts and minds of his fellow Athenians. In 399 BC, the goodwill ran out a courier delivered a message to Socrates. It was a legal matter. Charges were being filed against Socrates in a private matter, meaning the city of Athens was not involved, whereas three men were putting forth prosecuting Socrates for the crimes of impiety and corruption of youth. Here is the actual wording of the charges. Miletus, son of Miletus, of the Deme Pythus, indicts Socrates, son of Sophroniscus, of the deme Allopikai, for his oath as follows: Socrates is guilty of first, not worshipping the gods whom the state worships, but introducing new and unfamiliar religious practices, and second, of corrupting the young. The prosecutor demands the death penalty, Unquote. and with that starts the final act of Socrates's life. Most people, when they reach an advanced age, the gravity of the days rarely comports to the drama and excitement of their youth. For Socrates, ever the outlier, he will reach his zenith of his Socrates at the very end of his story. But that is a story for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it listening as much as I enjoyed creating. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you join me next time as we enter the fray.